Hello and welcome to the Praise Center Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, visit PraiseCenterOnline.com. Today's subject comes from our readings and our study this week, and it's called, Why and How Should I Tell Others? And so I'd like you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and uh, we'll start at verse 4. It's a passage I've preached from many times. I think you hear a lot out of here, but... uh, uh, I was uh, this week. I was looking at uh, some stuff online and uh, some quotes and different things, and I was uh, drawn to uh, the famous last words of some famous people. And it's interesting to hear some of the things people say. I, I was struck with. Uh, I don't know much about her story. Some of you may know more than me, but Joan of Arc. Uh, I think she was 19 years old when she, when she died, which is amazing that she made so much influence in her life. This young lady stood up for the cross, stood up for what was right in life. And her last words as she was being burned at the stake was, uh, she was saying to other people, hold the cross high so I can see it through the flames. Wow. You know, that, that's amazing to think about a 19-year-old who's going to be burned alive for Jesus Christ who decides that that's what she wants to say. And uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, who we, you know, we all know his work and how incredible, he, uh, he said this at the, at the very last words that are recorded of him. And if you think about the Mona Lisa, the Sistine Chapel, you think about all, you know, the sculptures and all the art that he did. This is what he said at the end of his life. I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. <laughs> it's like, oh, if you feel that way, what is, where does that leave the rest of us? That's crazy. Interestingly, of Charles Darwin, the uh, father, I guess you'd say, of, of evolution, Uh, His last words are, I am not the least afraid to die. Now, I don't know if it's true or not. Some of this could just be urban legend. But I I have read before that before he died that he actually uh, did receive Christ as his Savior. I don't know if it's absolutely true or not, but that would would make sense in light of this, wouldn't it? You know, that, uh, wow, I'm not afraid to die because I know the Lord. So I don't know if that's true or not. I I don't, uh, you know, so that's that. Also, another person who did a lot in their life, uh, Alexander Graham Bell said, so little done, so much to do. And uh, those are interesting to me. Here's some other famous last words uh, that you may think through. Uh, One guy said to the other, I'll hold it and you light the fuse. (laughs) Or I'm making a citizen's arrest. (laughs) You might not want to do that. Here's another one. Nice doggy. (laughs) A couple more. Guy says, I can do it with my eyes closed. <laughs> and finally, I wonder where the mother bear is. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> but all that to say, I'm kind of leading into something uh, here, is that depending on which gospel you read, because there's four, four different gospels, and they all have a, a, a little bit different point of view, and that makes sense. Sometimes people see those as like contradictions, but they're not contradictions. They're simply, if you, you know, you know the old story, if you... Uh, had blind guys touch an elephant and uh, they described it, they would all come away with different descriptions based on where they touched it. And the same could be said of the, of the Gospels is that these are from people's different perspectives, some things that they heard that other people didn't hear, some things they saw that other people didn't see, and so you, uh, as those stories are related. But depending on which Gospel you read, the last words of Jesus on the cross were either, it is finished, or, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And... Um, and, but how many know that Jesus' last words on the cross were not his last words? 
right? Because we know he went into that tomb, but he rose from the dead. And guess what? He came out and he began to speak again and began to teach again. And so he, he, uh, he did a lot of, the, 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 lot of teaching and different things that happened over a 40-day period. And, so, and, and, and besides all that, he lives forevermore and he is still speaking to us by his spirit. So he's continuing. So we're, we really don't ever and we never will have the last words of Jesus. In fact, even the word of God, which are the words of God, words of Jesus, if you will, it says that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word lives forever. So even this word ends up living forever. And it's amazing to think about. But, but I'm going to kind of zero all that talk in now on what, what we'll say are Jesus' final words while standing on this planet, at least the first time, all right? So, so you understand he's coming again, and he'll be more he'll have to say while his feet are on this earth, but, but, there, it, but back then, there was this period of 40 days, and that really leads us up to Acts 1, uh, 4 through 9 is what we're going to read here. And this would be the last time his disciples would see him face to face. And I want to just say, I don't know about you, but if I knew it was my last opportunity to see someone and have a face to face with them, then I would make those words that I was about to speak the most powerful and the most important they could be. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mince words. I would get right to the major point. Does that make sense? And so I believe that's what Jesus is doing here. And so that's what we're going to read about in Acts 1, 4 right now. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. And this is where Jesus begins to say his final words on planet Earth. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. Here we go into the last words now. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up. He ascended, we call it. He ascended right before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So again, our title today is Why and How Should I Tell Others? Let's pray. Lord, uh, we want to take to heart your word, all of it. But God, especially when we see something that is so profound in this moment when you have that last opportunity to look your disciples in the eye, to give them uh, some command and to give them some words to go forward with, you spoke these words. And so we want to kind of get our hearts around the idea of what you're after in this. In Jesus Christ's name. Do you agree? Say amen. All right. So... um, Anybody like me out there that you just, you just kind of get through life figuring stuff out by trial and error? Yeah, yeah. yeah? oh good. So I'm not alone in that. I, uh, I've said this many times before. I, I grew up without a dad. Uh, my mom worked a lot. I was on my own a lot. I wasn't a very good student in school for the most part. When I got to Bible college, I did much better. Uh, the Lord had w- kind of worked on me by then. But I just, I just honestly, and I just, <laughs> I was just as dumb as a bag of rocks. I mean, I was just like, I just did, <laughs> I really mean that. I didn't know a thing. I was out, I was clueless. And so uh, right after high school, I, I kind of felt like I had this call to go in the ministry, but I had no money. I had no way to get to Bible school. I didn't know how to, how to even go about that. And I didn't, I didn't know anything. I had a driver's license, but I, honestly, I didn't have a car. And I was living up there with a family and riding the bus. And I, I got a job and finally saved up a little money. And so I, I, I want to buy my first car. And, and uh, woo, I mean, you know, this is a long time ago. This is 1976. So I bought a 1962 Chevy Bel Air. 
Now, there was the Impala, there was the uh, Biscayne, uh, or, uh, no, excuse me, mine was the Biscayne, sorry. And so there was the Impala, the Bel Air, and then there was the Biscayne. And it was like the cheapest Chevy, uh, uh, just a, a really bad car. <laughs> nothing. I spent a whole $150 on my first car. I mean, I just, I know, it was amazing. That was a lot of money, though, for me, I tell you. So, uh, but this car was in really rough shape when I got it. I mean, and I didn't know anything about cars. And back in the 70s, I know you young people will be shaking your head at this, but there was a period of time in the 70s where uh, the speed limit across America on the freeways was dropped to 55 miles an hour because there were concerns about having enough gas and they thought everybody driving slower would make us use less gas. And so, uh, so anyway, that was going on. So the speed limit was 55 on the freeway. And that was no problem at all with this car because that when I would get up to around 55 miles an hour, my, my front uh, left tire would start hopping. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, you know, and so you had to always keep it at like at about 54 because you go any faster and the thing would just start shaking apart. <laughs> and, uh, but I didn't know why. I had no clue. <laughs> it was just hopping all the time. And so uh, later I found out that the tire was way out of balance. Seems pretty obvious now, but I didn't even know you balanced tires, right? <laughs> this is how much I knew. So I'm serious. I just knew nothing. So anyway, so um, I was semi-aware of the fact that uh, something needed to go in the radiator, and so I checked it, and uh, I, was, I, I looked at it, and I, I didn't really know what antifreeze was, and I knew it cost money, so I thought, well, that can't be you know, something I need. So I poured... <laughs> See what I'm saying? You're all sitting there. Can you, anybody be so dumb? I don't know. So anyway, I just put water in the in the radiator, and it ran fine, no problem. And uh, but and and I lived in Portland at the time. But what happened was is that, and it doesn't happen very often in Portland. But once in a while, they'll get a deep freeze, kind of like we've been in for the last you know eternity. And <laughs> and so we got a deep freeze there. And the next day, I come out. And I look at my car, and there's a puddle of water underneath it, rusty looking water. And I go, oh. And so I thought, what is that? And so I finally talked to some guy that knew more about cars. He says, well, you, a freeze plug, uh, you, you've popped a freeze plug in your car. And I thought, what's a freeze plug? <laughs> you know, I had no idea. And, and maybe you don't either, but they're in, you're, they're in your engine. If it ever freezes, it, it pops this plug out instead of ruining the block. Um, so... Uh, I bought a freeze plug that was the right size. I got a hammer, and I just beat that thing in there, and it sort of worked uh, for a while. And then I refilled my radiator with, you guessed it, more water. <laughs> okay, so uh, clueless. Anyway, so since then, um, since my early days in life, I thankfully... Um, I was uh, wise enough to ask a lot of questions through life. And so every experience I had, I would ask people, why does this do this? What is that about? And I just kept asking a lot of questions, and I've learned a lot of things about cars. And in fact, at one point after Ron and I were married, I uh, put a new motor in a, different, in a car. I rebuilt a, a manual transmission on my garage floor. I mean, I'm, I just I learned some stuff. I got after it. You know, I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't afraid of things because I didn't know about them. I just figured I'll learn as I go. And so I went after it, and I learned a lot of practical things things. And, and so as we had kids, and as I had kids, uh, and they got older, I, I, got, I began to know quite a few things just in a practical way in life, right? Fact is, if you, if you want to know something, ask me. If I don't know, I'll tell you I don't know. But chances are, I, I've, I've had so many experiences. I've done construction. I've done everything. You know, I've just done a lot of stuff. This isn't braggadocia. This is just saying a lot of it just stuck in my head. I'm kind of like a sponge. If you tell me something, it kind of sticks, and I get it. So, so I got a lot of knowledge about a lot of different things. i uh, anyway, so, so, uh, so I figured as, as my kids were getting older that I would be the fount of all knowledge in their lives, right? 
And so this was working pretty well for me, actually, for years. And even as they got married and started having kids of their own, I'd get these calls all the time. In fact, this week I got calls from two of my sons asking me questions. And it, it always builds me up when they do that. I always feel like, yeah, good, I got, I got something I can share with you about that. And if I don't know, I'll say I don't know. But, 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 um, but what happens over time... Um, you know, and I recently made this observation that I'm getting less and less of these calls because one of my kids will call or will talk about something. He said he will say, "Yeah, this something something happened," and I was about ready to tell him the answer. He says, "Yeah, I looked up a YouTube video, and I found out YouTube is taking my place, and I'm really hurt by that." You know, I'm hurt by that. So, uh, so, but. But the, the last words of Jesus, are, they're important words. They're, they're, they're words of instruction. They're, they're born out of his, his godhood, if you will. That this is stuff I want you guys to get. <laughs> I really want you to get this. And in fact, they have to do with his primary calling, if you will, of why he became a man, why he came to this earth. And in fact, it's, it, it is what he has, has left us on earth to do. It has everything to do with that. It's obvious to us when we look at this that the primary message to his disciples is that they have not yet received the promised baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? And so he's saying, first of all, you guys got to understand something. To do what you need to do, to do what I've been doing, what you need to do is that you also need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so he said, go wait in Jerusalem for that. And then in verse 8, it reveals the reason for the baptism. He says the reason for the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is really twofold, but they're interconnected. The first and foremost is power. You'll hear a lot of preachers say that the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for power to be a witness. That's not what the scripture says. It says, you will receive power, and then the word and, it's in there in the Greek, and you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Samaria. And so these are two separate things, but they are interconnected, okay? And so you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit for power. What's the power for? Well, it's to do the works of Jesus, right? And what, what did he say we would do? And, and greater things, right? Do you remember this? He said, you'll do greater things in John. So, so we're, we've got the baptism of the Holy Spirit to have power. But then when you say, well, what's the power for miracles for? What's the power uh, to, to do greater things? What, what did Jesus use the power for? Well, he cared for people. He healed the sick. And, and what was the end result of everything that Jesus did? You see where I'm going with this? Is that it led people to him. It drew people to him. And ultimately, that's what the power is for. And we ought to be after the power of God more and more in our personal lives and in the life of our church. I'm telling you, we need God's power here. We need his power. We need a, a move of the Holy Spirit and the power to fall upon us. We need, we need to bring it in church. We need to bring it out in the marketplace and into our homes. We need to be praying that God would release power in us. Let's be filled with the Spirit and be full of power. But ultimately... The, the power, even the power of God is going to lead us to the, the last thing that Jesus said, which has to be to go into the world, to bring the, the, be a witness to, for Judea, uh, Jerusalem, which is the city, Judea, surrounding area, Samaria, another culture, but nearby and to the ends of the earth. Everything's covered, and there's this progression you see that God has. So today, and this is what Jesus says, and then he ascends, he's gone, and angels say, don't worry about it, guys. Get to work. Do what, you know, basically do what he says. Same Jesus you saw go into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him, in which we're waiting on that to this day. Man, he's coming soon. So I'm talking today about why we should tell others. Now, uh, as believers, our passions should and must align with God's passions, don't you think? 
And so what is, what is it that the God of this universe cares so much and so deeply about? What, is, what seems to be number one on, on His agenda? And that happens to be people, doesn't it? Do you see that? I mean, the whole reason He created human beings because He cares and He loves people. I want to give you three reasons today to tell people about Jesus, to witness, to tell others about Him. Uh, and we're going to do this pretty quickly. So first of all, here's this. Number one, it's, and everybody knows this, but I just want to say it, God loves them because God loves them. That's the number one reason, I think. That, and, and we love people too, don't we? And, and so that's a great motivator. We need to let people know that God loves them. In Second Peter 3, 9, we read this passage. It's familiar to us, but it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. And he's talking about the promise of His coming. And, and, and I don't know about you, but I, every, every time I hear about some terrible thing that's happened, and I, I hear like, like there's a lot of talk about abortion lately and late-term abortion, and I think, how, what a horrible age we live in, Right? It's like, what a horrible thing to happen to, to, to babies that, 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 you know, it's just crazy that we're getting to this place in society. And then we hear from the haze about uh, sex trafficking and all this stuff, and that's happening in our country as well. And you hear about the poverty, and you hear about the starvation, you hear, and all these disasters, and I keep thinking to myself, Lord, we really need you to come. Right? We really need you to come, Lord. And you keep thinking, I, sometimes I think to myself inside, I think, God, why aren't you coming? What, what possible reason would you have for not coming and putting an end to the misery and the confusion and the hatred and the prejudice and the war, you know? What? And here's the answer right here. What, do, do I want to be the one that says, okay, come right now, Lord, and just before the end of this service when somebody in this room might even give their life to Christ? So, so, so what God's doing is he's like, believe me, he's, he's more miserable than we could ever imagine for all the misery that's happening on the planet. But at the same time, what's happening is God is patient. And he seems slow to us, but what he says as it continues is instead he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. He's like hanging on. And how miserable to watch the devastation and the destruction and all the horrible things that are happening on planet Earth. And he's saying, but what I want is everyone to come to repentance. Just one more. I can hear, hear the Father saying, just one, another one. And it's almost too hard for him because it's like if, if we just, you, know, you understand the heart that he has to see people come to him. And the fact that God loves people should be motivation for us. I hope that it is to tell people about him, but oftentimes it's not enough motivation for us. We, we tend to forget how far we've come since we received Christ. We, it's only natural that as we came to the Lord and over time we started to gravitate toward people that believe like we did. And then, and then now, now we stand uh, with them and, and they, statistics tell us that after about two years most Christians do not even have unsaved friends anymore. That they've either won them to Christ, that would be the best of course, or they've just become disconnected from them because they don't have anything in common anymore. And, and while that, there's some of that that makes sense, uh, and it's, it seems rather natural, at the same time, that's a problem. You know, that's a problem. And just, I was so thankful. I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I guess you, you read the materials this week, but for what Brent said today and had us pray specifically for people in our lives, maybe people we even work with or neighbors, and say, hey, they need, they need Jesus. They need to know the Lord. And so... Um, so uh, we, we need to be about that because God loves them. 
We need to figure out, and I love to see the creativity of people um, that just learn to get out there in the community and figure out ways to love on people and, and uh, just, just ask God. Just say to God, God, would you show me how you want me to get out there, how you want me to make an impact? Back in uh, 96, 1996, I, was, I had written an Easter drama. And for the drama, we, uh, I built a huge, extensive set. It was a big, big deal. And I had to make three life-size crosses. And I, was in, I remember I was in a barn, like uh, some guy's barn, and I'm cutting these big timbers, and I'm, I'm sawing things, and I'm, I'm trying to you know, get the wood in shape and everything. And at one point, I ran my hand down a piece of uh, the cross. And when I did, I got a, a pretty bad splinter, and I pulled the splinter out, and I just went about my business. I wasn't paying much attention. But after a few moments, as I looked at that kind of light-colored wood, I noticed a smear of my own blood across it, but, and I wasn't expecting this. I wasn't expecting this moment. But all of a sudden, I just it was like a wave of just emotion came over me. And I had to step back from that because all of a sudden, the reality of what Jesus did just, just overwhelmed me. And I began to well up with tears in my eyes. And I'm like, I'm standing back as if it's like, you know, like it's not, in my mind, it was like the blood of Jesus in that moment. And I was like, I can't touch that. It was like a holy, holy moment for me. And I just felt like, I felt like, Lord, I just, and I began to feel in that moment the depth of God's love and the depth of Christ's love for me in a way I had never experienced before. And it, and it touches me even as I think about it today, how amazing, how amazing his love was for me. The horrible and cruel death that Jesus died for me. I can't believe, I think about it, I think, I can't believe I was worth that to you, Lord. I know me. <laughs> you know, I know what a mess I am. I know that junk in my life and I, I think why what on earth did you see in me lord but it's the same thing he saw in you and the same thing he sees in everybody on this planet even the worst sinner and the father sent his only son because he loved you he loved me he did it because he loved me he loves you and he loves the world love is a powerful motivator amen i have three children i love them all dearly three boys and and if God had ever came to me and said, Sal, I can guarantee you that two of your children will make it to heaven, but the third will not, you have to choose which one. I couldn't do it. You know what I'm saying? Like, how could you ever? How could you ever think about that? That's how powerful love is. I love my kids so much. I could never decide that. I could never, you understand what I'm saying? And so, and so yet the love that I have in my heart for my kids, and I think the reason I said it that way is so we can relate a little bit. Like, it's so powerful, you can't even talk in that moment. But we're only scratching the surface of the depth <laughs> of God's love for us. It's amazing. It's amazing. And you can imagine his grieving heart that every day people die without knowing him. Just how deeply that hurts. Because his, in his mind, they're his children. God's love is real. Somehow we've got to get that message out. God loves people. It's like the biggie. It's right. You know, it's the verse that everybody knows. He so loved the world that he gave his only son for us. So, so I believe love is a great and maybe the most powerful motivator for us to, to tell people about Jesus. But here's another reason that we ought to tell others, and that's this, because hell is real. Hell is real. 
There was an evangelist who was preaching at a little country church, and he began his sermon with this stirring reminder. He said, everybody in this church is going to die. And he was disturbed because he saw a man on the front row who was smiling from ear to ear, and he was just grinning, and the guy thought, that's weird. Like, why is he smiling? Because everybody else was struck by that, you know? And he looks at this guy, he's smiling, and he says to the guy, why, what's, what's so in, why are you smiling? And the guy says, well, it's because this isn't my church, I'm just visiting my sister. But the truth is, nobody's going to escape that unless the Lord comes, right? We're all, you know, depressing as this may sound, we're all going to die someday. And we have to be prepared for that. But hear Jesus' words. He says this, and, and this is stark. I mean, sometimes we just love to hang out with other kind of verses. We don't like to hang out in verses like this. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's tough. And I'm not trying to be scary and morbid, or all, but we tend to be uplifted and encouraged when we come to church. We want that kind of thing. And, 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 but when we begin to talk about hell, that's such an unpopular message. And its reality is, is, is not so welcome or wonderful to us. The truth is, and you know this probably, is that Jesus said more about hell than he did about heaven. Why would he do that? When I came to Christ, I have to tell you, part of my realization that motivated me to receive the Lord, it didn't start out with love or desire to be a Christian, but I think God for a moment gave me a glimpse of the reality of hell, and I really honestly felt in a moment that, it, that I, I was bound there. I finally realized that it was a real place and that I would be going there. And so initially, why I stepped forward in that living room that night in 1973 and gave my life to Christ as a 15-year-old is I was afraid. I was totally afraid. Now, it didn't last long. I grew to love the Lord immediately. But don't, don't think that even though love is a great motivator, don't think that hell cannot be a great motivator. <laughs> and the problem is we water things down so much, we don't talk about it ever. And so, so people, you know, um, a lot of times people just uh, don't realize that there's a reality. And I don't care if it, if it takes a little bit of fear to get someone to heaven or they're just drawn by the love of God, it's all good. But I want people to know the Lord. On the 8th of July in 1741, a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards, one of the great well-known preachers from that era, he preached a message titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Here's a great message. Let's put that up on the sign out there, right? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's considered to be one of the finest sermons ever preached. They, they, people still read it today and go over it. But here's an excerpt. I'm going to read this part to you. It's a little bit lengthy, but let me read this to you. This is what Jonathan Edwards preached. He said, This is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has not been born again. Oh, that you would consider it, whether you be young or old. If we knew that but one person in the whole congregation was to be the subject of this misery, what an awful thing it would be to think of. How might all the rest of the congregation lift up a lamentable and bitter cry over him? But alas, instead of one, how many is it likely will remember this discourse in hell? And it would be a wonder if some that are present should not be in hell in a very short time before the year is out. And it would not be a wonder if some persons that now sit here in health and quiet and secure should be there tomorrow morning. Bam. Like, just throw it out there, right? Wow. I mean, you, you just don't hear preaching like that anymore, do you? <laughs> Somebody might be thinking to themselves, I'm, I'm glad we don't. But sometimes I think we need to hear the reality and know 
I heard one preacher say, in our day and age, the old man has become the inner child, and who's going to kill that off? Right? We, we've kind of become this, like, we, we don't want to say anything to offend anybody. We don't want to. And, and so what we've done is we've renamed sin, and we just call it dysfunction now. We've got to come to the grips with the fact that there is an eternal fire, and sinners will go there. We ourselves were headed there. We don't think of ourselves as better than. We ourselves were headed there, but God saved us. We reached out for salvation, and he saved us. If we stop and remember, we'll remember that that's true. In the last decade or so, there have been some well-known preachers. Uh, this, is, this has been the case of humanity, really. But there's been some well-known preachers, in, and I think we're more aware of it now because of media, social media, and all that. They've tried to water down hell or to do away with it altogether. And, uh, and oh, how I wish we could, folks. <laughs> I really do. But I think the Bible is very clear. I know the Bible's clear on this subject. I don't know where they're going or how they're coming up with that stuff. But there's always been a tendency to water things down and to do away with, with it because it's really hard to think about. I mean, if you really let yourself think about it, it's hard, isn't it? But Jesus himself said, that hell is a place where, and this is what he, he said, he quoted uh, from Isaiah, the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Those are the words of Jesus quoting the prophet Isaiah. The worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. That's in your book. In Revelation 20, verse 15, we read, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. But we got to know this. that God, Listen, God did not make hell to be populated with people. That was, listen, that was never His intention. He made it for the rebellious devil and the rebellious angels who could never be brought back to salvation, never be brought back into fellowship with God. He made it for them. And we got to know this, that God... Here, and, and this may sound like a technicality, but I really believe this. I think this is the way we have to get it in our heads. God does not send people to hell. But their refusal to receive the gift of salvation and the forgiveness of sins is what seals their fate. I often think of it this way. I've used this illustration before. But if, if we're out in the water, we've, let's say we're out in the middle of the ocean and sharks are circling around us and we're about to get eaten. And someone's on a boat and they have a, a life ring and they say, here, they throw it out beside us, right where we can grab it, and say, grab this, I'll pull you to safety. Right? How many in this room say, yeah, I'm grabbing that life ring right now? Okay? I don't know if anybody wants to pet sharks or not, but you're weird. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, any right person knowing that their fate is, is sealed with those sharks is going to want to grab that life ring. That's exactly what God is doing for us. But the problem is, people will sit out there in the water and think, you know, I think I'll take my chances. I don't really care for the boat you're sailing. I don't like the owner of the boat. You know, like, like, like it's crazy when you think about it that way. But that's what they're saying. They're rejecting God and they're saying, I don't want to accept the gift, the free gift of life. I won't receive that from you. Because it means I have to give up my own life, really, is what it boils down to. I have to decide to put myself in your hands, ride your boat, meet with all the other people on the cruise who are really cool people, actually. If you, Yeah, you know, right? It's, it's a fun boat, actually. It's really nice. So, so, indeed, I would say hell will motivate us if we think of the reality of it, but 
hell will only motivate us to tell others about Jesus if we love them to begin with. Because if our hearts aren't moved with love and compassion, then hell is not a good motivator. I have one final point. It'll be a bit shorter, and that's this, and this is going to be kind of a weird one, but this is another great reason to tell others about Jesus. It's because Jesus is Lord. This is probably, this could actually be the biggest problem we have, especially we Americans. We don't have a clue when it comes to submission and taking orders. No, no, no. We have fought for our independence, and we're used to thinking of ourselves as our own bosses. I, I listen to some talk radio from time to time. Don't judge me. There's this one uh, gal that's on the radio, uh, Dana Lash, I think is her name. I don't know that I subscribe to everything she says, but I, I, she's interesting to me. I listen to her. Um, she's feisty. Reminds me of my wife. And uh, anyway, so she... She has this commercial, though, that, to advertise her show. And she gets on there and says, I'm not a subject in America. I'm a citizen, right? And, and it's true, right? We're citizens of this country. You want to be a subject and have other people tell you what to do, that's fine. And, but I am a citizen, and I'm going to say what I want to say. And we're all cheering right now because we're thinking, yeah, independence, America, rah! We're not going to let those politicians tell us what to do. We have a vote. We have a right. We are citizens, and, and we're important to this thing. And, and you know, I'm not saying it's a bad system. I'm saying it's a system we've got, and it's among systems on the earth. It seems to be a very, very good system, maybe the best other than one I can think of. But the problem is it has no relation whatsoever to what we belong to as believers. We belong to a kingdom. You hear the word king in the word kingdom? We belong to a kingdom whose king is sitting on the throne, who's the king of the entire universe, and we are subjects of that kingdom. We're also citizens of his kingdom, but we're subjects of that kingdom because we said when we asked Jesus, see, this is why it's so important when we, in Romans 10, it says if you want to uh, be saved, you have to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, but you also have to confess him as what? Lord. Lord. And I think Lord is a little word that we just throw out there and we think, hey, it's kind of like saying God. No, it isn't. It's like saying master. It's like saying you're the boss. You're like you're the king. You're in charge of my life. It's you, Lord, and no other. So we may be citizens of America, but we are subjects of the king. And we are to submit to his lordship. We're to do what he tells us to do. And I'll tell you, it's a great trade, isn't it? Because I can really trust him with my life, I've found out. And when I do what he tells me to do, and when I listen to him, it always just goes better for me. That's the best government system there ever was. And that's the one he tried to institute with Israel, which we call a theocracy, where he was in charge. But they asked for a king, and there you went. They went to a human king instead of a god as their king and messed it all up. We humans just aren't good at this stuff. We've confused democracy with God's way. Sometimes we think about submitting to authority and we think, well, I'll submit as long as I agree with the authority that I'm submitting to. Many years ago I heard John Bevere say, he's always so good on this stuff, he said submission doesn't even begin until there's a disagreement. You think you're submitting because everything's going along fine and all of a sudden somebody says you something you disagree with and then you say, well, I don't, I, I'm not going to go there. Uh, <laughs> you're not even beginning to submit until that point. of see, see, that's what Jesus did. He always did the Father's will. Always, always, always. There was one time, though, he said, I don't want to do your will. Do you remember? 
He said it three times. He said, Father, this is big. He says, I'm, he's in the garden. It's like his sweat is beating up like drops of blood on his forehead. He says, I, I, you know, I don't want to go to the cross. Please take this cup from me. I don't want to do this. But what did he follow it up with? See, he didn't sin in saying that. He was just being real. He was just being a human being. But what did he follow it up with? Not my will, but yours be done. So it's okay to say to God, God, this is hard that you're asking me this, but not my will, but yours be done. That's submission. Jesus walked through it in the toughest thing in his life. You and I must walk through it with God every day, every day. At the end of Matthew, we have a passage that we call the Great Commission. Here's what Jesus said. You remember it. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the end of the age. Now leave that up there for a while, if you would, please, for me, Missy. The great commission, number one, is not the great request. Okay? Got that? But here, listen, listen a bit further, because Webster's dic Dictionary says, commission means this, an authorization to perform certain duties or tasks or take on certain powers. So all authority has been given to Jesus. He tells us to go. And so authority has been given to him. He's giving authority to us, and we go. But the, the truth is, the word commission isn't actually in this passage. I mean, it describes it well, for sure. I'm okay with the word commission, but there's a different word that is in this passage, and it's the word command or commanded. Command is way deeper than a commission. It's far more than that. It's something he commanded us to do. For us, it should be unthinkable to not do what we've been told to do. The word witness in Acts 1.8, which we read, you'll be my witnesses, is the Greek word martis, which is also translated martyr. Martyr is someone who a person who voluntarily suffers death as a penalty for witnessing and refusing to renounce Christ. That's how deep this goes. That's, so this is, this is lordship that takes you all the way to say, I'll give my life for it. Uh, and that's what it means when you say, now, I don't tell people that on the, <laughs> right at the beginning, but as you begin to know the Lord more and you understand, no, I gave my life to him, so anything he says goes. That's it. This is tough to preach, but it's important. I'm going to have the worship team come on back up. So again, three things. You could probably go on and on. You could do a, a whole series on this, but three things I wanted to share with you today is that we're to tell others because God loves them, and we do too, because hell is real, and because we're under orders as subjects of the king. He commands it. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I love... I lo I don't fish much anymore. I haven't fished in a long time, but I, I used to really love it. And uh, to me, that's a beautiful description of the kind of work we'll do as we're telling others. Because in Lonnie knows this, he's a fisherman, and so is Chris, and these guys, some of you are great fishermen. And you know that depending on the day, the time, the, the type of fish you're after, the water you're in, the specific location, there can be all kinds of different bait and lures and scents and different things that all go into doing the best fishing that's out there. So as a church, we have a multifaceted approach. And even as individuals within the church, we have this multifaceted approach to fishing for men. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, so this, is, this is what we're... Because there's all kinds of different fish, and there's all kinds of ways to go after this. 
And this is, this is, uh, so, so I, this is a weird time to show this video, and, but I um, just want to show you just a, about a 30-second clip of a video that, that this is the way I think we wish witnessing would work. When we're inviting people to church, we just would wish that they're all out there, yes, invite me to church. I can't wait to get in the boat with you. Come on. Yes, it's exciting times. Let's have fish jumping in our church every day. Wouldn't that be great, people? Don't you think that'd be fun? And here's this amazing place where these, these fish are just jumping into the boat and flopping around. And, and you know, I think to myself, man, I, I wish it was that easy. I wish this giant boat that we're in right now that just people would just flock in here. And, it, and sometimes they do come in, you know. But this is what Jesus said. He said, go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel them come in. I want to talk about this next week, but there has to be a place to come into. That's the church, right? There has to be a place to come into if we're going to compel them to come someplace. And so he says, go out and tell them. And then he says, so that my house will be full. One more little history lesson here. On Sunday night, October 8th of 1871, well-known evangelist D.L. Moody preached to the largest congregation that had ever uh, been addressed in Chicago. Huge crowd. And his text that evening was, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called the Christ? That was his title. It was taken from Matthew chapter 27, verse 22. And at the conclusion of his sermon, he said, I wish you would take this text home with you and turn it over in your minds during the week. He said, next week we'll come to Calvary and the cross and we'll decide what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. And, and by the way, the crowd was full of people that didn't know the Lord yet. And so what he was saying, he was kind of being cute about it. He's thinking, all right, I just preached you a message. I laid this out. I want you to think about this for a whole week. And then we're going to come back next week. He's thinking, all right, I'm really going to reel him in next week. We're going to get it. Unbeknownst to them at that moment, and the, the sermon was finished, and the, uh, he had a singer, Ira Sankey, who began to lead a hymn to sing at the end of the service. And, but Sankey never got to finish the song because, because uh, as he was singing, the, the, they, were heard, they heard the whistle and the roar of fire engines going by. These, of course, were horse-drawn and people going by on the street outside. And, and before they knew it, the city of Chicago lay in ashes because a woman by the name of Mrs. O'Leary was milking her cow by lantern and the cow tipped it over and much of the city of Chicago was burned. Dr. Moody never got a chance to finish that message. He never, and he regretted for the rest of his life that he had told the, sir, the congregation to come back next week and hear the rest of it, basically. And he said, I have never since dared to do that. Almost every Sunday, I give an opportunity for people to receive Jesus here, and, and I think I actually know everybody in the church today, and, but, and so you may think oftentimes, why does he do that every week when, you know, there, a lot of times there's just no response. Sometimes there is, and I guess the answer is because sometimes there is, and I, I think about this often. I think, I don't ever want to miss a chance where the gospel's been presented and preached, and somebody isn't given an opportunity. And so, like many times I have, and I'll do it again, because I never know where everybody's heart and soul is, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes with me. This is the truth. This is the gospel. God loves you. He doesn't want you to spend an eternity apart from Him. He doesn't want anybody to be apart from Him. So He's inviting, always, always inviting, to 
at anyone who will come. He's knocking at the door of every heart always and saying, if you'll open up, I'll come in. Thank you for listening to Praise Center Sermon of the Week. Don't forget, for more information, visit PraiseCenterOnline.com.